Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, last time I put this chart on the board which we'll start off with this time. And so I've got got handouts here for everybody. So, uh, Tinker, you want to come up? Here, split those between you and Bob. You can pass them out on one side and get them passed out on the other side there. All right, the only announcement I've got is... uh, Some of those who tune in during the week may not have heard the announcements on Sunday morning, and that is that at some point this summer uh, we're going to have to have some construction, some work done in here uh, in order to bring the facility up to code to get the uh, uh, occupancy tag with the city all squared away. And so we don't know when they'll actually schedule that, but it... uh, uh, they're going to work with us. Hopefully it will not in- involve a Sunday morning, but there may be a week or two during the summer when we're not going to be able to have uh, class at night. So there is a sign-up sheet out in the foyer here uh, to my right where you should sign up. Make sure we have your contact information, cell phone number, email address, uh, Twitter account, <laughs> Facebook, whatever whatever it is that you use to be notified so that we can let you know that there's a, there's a problem and that we're not going to have class. So uh, other than that, I don't think there are, are any other announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, spiritually prepared, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're thankful that we can be here this evening just to fellowship around your word, to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to be reminded that you do have a plan for each of our lives and that you are intimately involved in the oversight of each of our lives and our spiritual life, and it is your desire to see us progress from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word this evening that you would challenge and encourage us and that we may be reminded that no matter uh, what we face in life, that you are still in control 
And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. And we are in a very important section of Hebrews, beginning with verse 3, where the focus is on the discipline in the spiritual life, divine discipline. Now, unfortunately, when most of us hear the word divine discipline, the first thing that comes into mind is some sort of punitive action from God because of spiritual disobedience. And that really isn't the primary focus of divine discipline. That is one aspect of it. Discipline itself is a training term. It is to discipline someone who has no self-control, no uh, boundaries, to uh, limit that which is unprofitable and to focus on that which is spiritually profitable. It is learning to exercise self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, to, to live on the basis of wisdom, which is really an Old Testament concept that was fairly well developed in, especially in the Old Testament book of Proverbs. And in Proverbs, the contrast is between wisdom on the one hand and foolishness on the other hand. And wisdom is an outgrowth of spiritual training and spiritual education in the Torah, learning the instruction of the word using Torah in its broader sense, uh, usually we think of Torah meaning the law, but the root idea in Torah is just instruction, the instruction, the teaching, the training of the uh, individual believer. Whereas foolishness is the opposite. That's what occurs when somebody lacks discipline and lacks control and lacks training, lacks education, and the consequence there is usually where, where punitive action comes in in various uh, various different ways. And for the believer that is progressing, even though there are times when it may seem like it's uh, punitive uh, action, it is not that. It is simply training us to be uh, controlled in our, uh, in our spiritual life. So I uh, ended up the last class going over this chart that uh, developed uh, many years ago. It's a flow chart to help us understand the overall plan that God uses in our life. And it starts with salvation. And salvation is very simple in the Christian life. Salvation comes simply by faith in Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. Jesus made a very exclusive statement. That means that either he was telling the truth or he was lying and if he was lying, he was the greatest deceiver in all of history. And if he was not lying, then he was telling the truth, and therefore we should uh, listen to him. He claimed to be the only way because all throughout history, God always set up exclusive ways of obedience. There was only one way to survive the Noahic flood, to get on the ark. There was only one way to enter into the tabernacle to worship God. There was only one way to enter into the tabernacle. There weren't many gates or entrances. There was only one. Anyone who entered into the tabernacle or temple had to do so on the basis of a blood sacrifice, which indicated that sin was had been dealt with in terms of cleansing. 
So this was usually covered under the concept of atonement. Atonement often translated by a Greek word meaning cleansing in the Septuagint and also had the idea of uh, satisfaction or the uh, or appeasing the justice of God, that the penalty for sin had to be taken care of. And all those offerings, or at least three of the offerings that were uh, necessary, that were described in the first part of Leviticus, all had to do with uh, the cleansing, the atonement for sin. They, there was the burnt offering, the sin offering, and the uh, guilt offering. All of these had to do with dealing with the problem, uh, problem of sin, the problem of, of guilt. So a person is saved by trusting Christ as Savior. Then there's the, and, and that spiritual infancy, also referred to as spiritual birth, regeneration, uh, being born again, being becoming a new creature in Christ. Then we have tests. As we grow up, we go through various phases of testing. It happens as you grew up. You went through all kinds of tests, situations that challenged your volition. That's what a test is. It's not necessarily something that is a major event. It is that you have learned something. Uh, I remember when I was... Uh, I don't know, three or four years old, and my parents decided it was time to start teaching me some table manners. And so we would learn how to properly hold a knife and fork and spoon one day, and then the next night it was, okay, how do you properly hold a fork? So you learn something, and then there's an evaluation and testing and reminders, and then when there was failure to do it right, there was some sort of punishment and if there was, uh, if you did it right, then there was a uh, praise. The punishment wasn't harsh. I mean, nobody was wrapping me on the knuckles. You might have acted like it or made me think that, but that never happened. So we go through life with tests. And any time we come into a circumstance where we have a choice between applying the Word of God or not applying the Word of God, that's a test, whether it's a small situation, small event, or major event. And that always brings into Focus our volition, how we decide. That is the key issue in life. We are and we become the results of the decisions that we make. And so we can either choose to be obedient to God and <clears throat> walk in fellowship with him, or we can choose to be disobedient. And on any given day, we will live part of the day choosing one way and part of the day choosing another way. That is the nature of uh, human existence because of sin. And we make, often make uh, wrong choices for a variety of different reasons. When we follow the path of obedience, this is, a, this is the cycle that we began to follow. Uh, we, it produces a divine good that is a good that is the result of the energy, the power of God, the Holy Spirit working in our life. It produces a quality of life that is beyond that of, uh, of what we can expect normally without the involvement with God. And it also produces evidence in our life that obedience to God is a good thing. And that produces endurance. Endurance leads to spiritual maturity. And this whole cycle is described as walking by the Holy Spirit. James 1, 2 through 4 is a foundational verse for understanding this procedure. 
On the other side, when we go in the other direction, then when we disobey God, violate his character, violate his standards, that's sin. But we can also, in living in uh, independence from God, we can do morally good things, but because we're doing them even in disobedience to God, uh, it is not uh, something of value that has eternal value or spiritual value, so we refer to that as simply human good. And this, also living on the basis of the sin nature, leads to a temporal death. Life is not what it ought to be, and if we continue this, we can come under a lot of divine punishment for uh, disobedience, and this is uh, also is destructive in our life. A lot of the divine discipline that we get is simply the result, the normal consequences of our own bad decisions or self-induced misery. This leads to a spiritual weakness or instability, and then eventually, if we continue in that mode, of rebellion, then it can lead to spiritual regression and what the Bible refers to as a hardened heart. So that is the standard uh, standard progression. Then at the end of life, there's an evaluation that takes place. Now, for the believer, the focus of the evaluation is not to decide whether you've done enough good deeds to get into heaven or not. That decision... Uh, about your eternal destiny is a result of deciding uh, about Jesus Christ. You trust in Christ, your destiny is heaven. Now the issue is in terms of ro- future roles, responsibilities, and rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. So the evaluation is on how much is produced in terms of our spiritual walk, and that which is produced in the upper cycle is rewarded. That which is produced in the other cycle is lost, and there may be a loss of rewards and temporary shame. So this is basically a flow chart you can look at to give you an idea of how God is working in terms of preparing us for the end game, which is the ruling and reigning with Christ in the kingdom and in eternity. That's the end game, living today in light of eternity. Another way of looking at this chart is just in the three categories. We have the first phase, which is where we are freed from the penalty of sin, phase one, and there is no more uh, death in terms of eternal death and separation from God. Phase two is the spiritual life where we learn to live free from the power of the sin nature, and then phase three where we are freed from the uh, presence of sin. In righteousness. So this then presents the overall flow chart. All right, now let's go back and pick up a few things I didn't quite cover the last time as we got into this section, beginning in verse 3. I want to go back and, and point out some other things and bring us up to date, and maybe we uh, will get down to verse 7 or 8 tonight. Verse 3 is an explanation. Explanation coming out of the first two verses. That pre- the first two verses present the conclusion coming out of chapter 11, but also lay the foundation for this uh, exhortation that comes, this challenge that comes to every believer. The teaching section in this last teaching, teaching section in Hebrews was chapter 11 about faith, about the, using the examples of the Old Testament saints to show that their are those who lived in light of eternity. They focused on their destiny. They focused on the 
promise of God, even though it wasn't fulfilled in their lifetime, even though they didn't, in the case of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they didn't see the land, they didn't see the conquest or possession of the land, they knew that it would come far off. We saw this in our study Tuesday night talking about the new Jerusalem, that they knew that there was a city, a city that was in a heavenly city, a city not built with human hands, and that that was their destiny. And so they lived in light of that. Their future destiny motivated their, their present reality. Then we came into verses 1 and 2, where we are to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and his spiritual life, occupation with Christ. Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, I pointed out that there's an imagery here, a metaphor that runs through this whole chapter. And this metaphor is a race metaphor. It's an athletic metaphor of uh, someone who is uh, in an athletic contest, a race, in a stadium. And the witnesses that surround him are those who have gone before. And they're witnesses in the sense of the examples of their lives. This isn't teaching that uh, those who are dead are in heaven watching us on the earth. That that's, would, would be a complete distortion and misrepresentation of the metaphor. It's an athletic metaphor that runs through the whole thing, comparing the Christian life to running a race and needing in the importance of reaching the finish line and not quitting uh, halfway through because you get tired or weary or distracted. So keeping our focus on the end game. So we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, uh, Paul says, let us lay aside every, every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. I said this is comparable to the whole concept of confession of sin. Before we can run, which has to do with forward advance in the spiritual life, we have to remove that which uh, distracts us, which is sin. That doesn't mean that we clean up our life along the way. And it's not a works-oriented thing because we can't do that. Following the athletic metaphor, the athletes in the ancient world ran, I mean, in the Greek contests, ran uh, ran naked. They stripped off all of their clothes so there would be nothing, no, the togas wouldn't get in the way, nothing would uh, hinder them or distract them in running the race. They had to remove their clothes before they could run the race. Now, if we carry that over into the spiritual life, that means that, uh, it can't be talking about completely removing any er, all areas of sin or disobedience to God before we can ever have a spiritual life. That would be impossible. No one can do that unless you have a very shallow view of of sin. There's always a few people you run into who don't think they're sinners because they don't really understand what sin is. Sin isn't you know, the, the five worst things that you can think of or the three worst things you can think of. Sin is anything that violates the standard of God. It can be anything from uh, self-centeredness and self-absorption, uh, arrogance, pride. Uh, these are some of the major sins that are mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, we often think of the overt sins as the worst sins, but those are simply manifestations of underlying mental attitude sins that are among the worst. Bitterness, anger, resentment. These are also sins. All of these make up sins. And, and often you find people who say, well, you know, I haven't sinned in 10 or 20 years. And then you just put them in front of a computer, have something go wrong, and have them dial customer service, and, and they'll find out whether they've sinned anymore or not. 
It doesn't take long. We don't need any personal testimonies at this. So, but, and so we have to, it's impossible. That's the whole point in scripture is man can never on his own measure up to God. He can never on his own meet God's high standard of absolute perfection. Only God can do that. And in grace, God has provided that for us so that we can uh, have the sin problem dealt with by someone else, which is the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. And because he paid the penalty then, when we trust him, his, right, his righteousness is credited to us, and it's on that basis that the believer is justified or saved. So the laying aside of every weight and sin is confession and then uh, moving forward. I pointed out the Greek construction there indicates that the, the pre, precondition for running is laying aside the weight. But we run the race by looking unto Jesus, who is the uh, pioneer or the uh, progenitor, the, the initiator of our faith, and the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what happens starting in verse 3 is an explanation of that, developing this out in terms of application to the Christian life. 4 indicates that explanation. Consider him, it means that we are to focus our attention on him. It's a thought word. We are to meditate, contemplate, and reflect upon his life. And he endured hostility from sinners, will never face the kind of opposition he faced. And he did not grow weary, discouraged. He didn't give up. He didn't go off and have a little pity party. He didn't whine about it. Um, he continued to have a, a, his perfect joy because of his focus on God's plan. And then the writer says, but you have not resisted to bloodshed, Jesus did, striving against sin. And then in verse 5, And you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. And now he is going to quote from the Old Testament from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. And I want to spend a little more time going over this again today, looking at the, the differences here. The quote in the Greek that's in Hebrews 12, 5 and 6 comes from the Septuagint, as we've seen all the way through our study of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews, like most of the New Testament writers, was uh, quoted most of the time from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek translation being known as the, as the Septuagint. And, uh, uh, and so the, the Greek behind the text is a little different from what you find in the Masoretic text. But when the Holy Spirit uses that and brings that into the New Testament under the principle of inspiration, then it is legitimized as correct because it does communicate a, something that is true. So the quote, as we read it in, in, in uh, verses 5 and 6 in Hebrews, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Now, the first key word to recognize here, or phrase really, is my son. This is addressed to someone who is within the family of God. Not every person who is born is in the family of God. 
God is not a person's father simply because he is the creator of all. Uh, scripture teaches that there was a distinction between those who were his and those who were not. In, in the Old Testament, Israel is an adopted son of God. Israel has the right to address God as father, but the pagan Gentiles who rejected him did not. The same principle was true in the New Testament. Those who were rebellious against God were addressed as being of their father, the devil, and not those who had uh, trusted in God. They were in the family of God. Uh, the John chapter 1, verse 12 says that as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. So we have the whole concept of adoption, that when a person believes in Christ, when a person becomes a believer, at that point he enters into the family of God and cannot be removed from that position. So my son addresses believer, and he says, Do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. And the first verb there to focus on is despise, which is from the uh, Greek word uh, allegoreo, which means to think lightly of something, to despise it, to ridicule it, to think of it as being insignificant, uh, to disrespect it. So don't have disrespect for the discipline of the Lord. Don't treat it lightly as if it is insignificant. Don't have a uh, shallow, superficial attitude toward it. Now, what is the chastening of the Lord? This is really the key word that opens up this entire section down through verse 11 for either the noun or the verb here carries through in every verse that we have from uh, 5 down through 11. And here we have the noun form, paideia, which has to do with upbringing, training, instruction, or discipline. The fact is that in the in the ancient world, especially in the Greek culture, uh, paideia was a term that referred to the training of the of the child. Once a uh, a baby was born in the house, then it was understood that that child needed to be trained so that they could function uh, with maturity in the in in the culture in the city. These uh, the Athenians had their view of paideia related to how they understood a productive citizen. The Spartans had a slightly different view because of their uh, strong emphasis on military training. And so the way they uh, instilled the discipline and the training varied, but it all came under the same category. It had to do with the kind of training and instruction and discipline that a parent would instill in a child so that by the time they reached adulthood, they could be a mature and productive member of, of society. So this is the idea of paideia or the paideia or the verb is paiduo, and we have both forms uh, in the next uh, five verses. And so every time you see the uh, in the New King James, they were they consistently translated this word. That's pretty unusual in some translations. Usually they'll shift back and forth to uh, various English synonyms, but at least uh, in this section, the translator always used the same English word to translate uh, uh, 
a form of paideia. So don't despise this, this training. We could, uh, di- we could, uh, translate it that way because it's not just penalty or punishment here. It's focusing on the fact that God wants to train you to be a mature believer. That's the end game. Not to stay in diapers, not to wallow around uh, messing your diapers in the spiritual nursery of the local church, but to reach a level of spiritual maturity so that you can be a productive believer uh, in and living out your Christian life. I remember about, uh, it's been almost 20 years now, went out to a pastor's conference in uh, Arizona in Phoenix back in the early 90s at uh, John... Um, uh, John Miller was the pastor of a church out there, and I think it's Glen, Glenwood, Glen something, suburb of, uh, of Phoenix. And one of the speakers was um, uh, Earl Rodmacher. Earl, at the time, was the chancellor of uh, Western Conservative Baptist Theological Seminary. They had uh, opened up a campus in, uh, in, in Phoenix, and he was the head of that campus, and so he was speaking on the spiritual life, and he made what I thought was one of the most uh, insightful comments and observations about modern Christianity. He said that the evangelical church in America was the largest nursery in the world. And the biggest problem was that nearly there, there was hardly any nursery worker by analogy, that means a pastor, who had any idea how to get the babies out of the nursery. In fact, I would add to that by saying the problem that we have today is that by the philosophy of ministry adopted by almost every pastor in this country, they are trying to get every believer back into the nursery and to keep them there. And they don't have a clue what the goal is. They just want to go in and entertain everybody on Sunday morning. They, they only give them shallow, superficial teaching. Now, it always seems to me, why is it that the one hour of the week that a pastor has the largest audience that he gives them and, and nothing more than baby food? A person cannot grow, and, and physically, a person cannot receive the kind of nourishment and the kind of of vitamins and everything else that he needs, the kind of diet that he needs to grow to become a healthy adult if all he eats is baby food. At some point, you have to feed them uh, adult food. They have to have more, uh, a more complex diet so that everything can grow, the, skeleton, the muscles can grow, the bones can grow, and everything uh, can grow, and, be, and they can be strong and healthy, physically mature adults. By analogy, the same thing is true in the spiritual life. We see the analogy used by Peter. We've seen this in uh, Second or in First Peter two two uh, that we are to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow by it. And he's using milk of the word there, not in contrast to meat as Paul did, but simply as a source of nourishment. That it's the word that produces growth. And if you're not taught the word, then you can't grow as a believer. And what we have is churches that uh, teach at such a shallow, superficial level on Sunday morning. People cannot grow beyond 
the depth of the teaching that they're receiving. So if you never put more than an inch of water in the swimming pool, nobody will ever learn to swim. And the and if you think of the teaching of the church by analogy as the the depth of water in the pool, the water has been getting shallower every year for the last 50 years. Until now, it's so shallow, nobody ever has to swim. And so they they can be very comfortable by going to church and never having their pagan, existential, humanist, uh, pragmatic, American worldview challenged by the teaching of God's word. That would be just too disruptive, and then they would have to learn how to figure out how to swim. And, of course, they can never do that in an inch of water. So there's no concept of training, and that's part of the job of the pastor is to fit within that training agenda by teaching the principles of the Word of God. Then the Holy Spirit takes that, and he's the one who applies it in your life, in your thinking, and then God is the one who supervises the events in our lives so that we get the opportunity to apply it. And so I just have the simple part of that, and that's teaching you the principles. God has the rough, <clears throat> the rough part of the plan, and I don't get involved in that. Now, when we look at those, those two ideas there, that we don't despise the training, we recognize that this, we are in a training program. Now, this, the verses that we looked at in 5 and 6 quote from, Psalm, I mean, from Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. There you see the word discipline is used in the English versus chastening. Uh, the discipline of the Lord, nor detest his correction. Now here, when we get into the um, Old Testament, we have very similar concepts. We have the word uh, despise there that uh, is the uh, translation of the Hebrew ma'as, indicating don't reject it, don't despise it, don't ignore it. Same idea, don't treat it lightly. And then the word for discipline in the Hebrew is the word misar, which means has the idea of discipline, but it comes from a root word which means to bind something. See, that's really what, what discipline does is it, it, it binds your selfish, self-oriented, self-absorbed desire so that rather than going out and, and just doing whatever you want to whenever you want to, you learn to uh, discipline yourself to control your desires and your appetites so that you can be productive in any, in any endeavor, whether you're talking athletics or uh, the arts or music. If you don't learn to discipline yourself to restrict yourself from uh, doing things that will not allow you to achieve your goal, then you will uh, never get anything accomplished. And that's the idea in binding. It is learning to restrict your life so that you don't do the things that are not profitable for you, that will not allow you to achieve the end goal. And for the believer, that is the end goal of spiritual, uh, spiritual maturity. It's a reminder of the verse that we find in Proverbs later on, Proverbs 22:15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, 
the rod of correction will drive it far from him. That should be mounted on every uh, every parent's uh, door, every child's door, or something today. Uh, because, and that's the same idea that uh, that we're talking about earlier with binding is that if you have a child and you never discipline, you never instruct, you never teach, you just always let them do whatever they want to do and give them whatever they want whenever they want it, you know what the result is. It's somebody that nobody wants to be around ever. It just You develop a child that is totally self, self-absorbed, goes way beyond any notion of being spoiled, and somebody who will become a sociopath and a criminal before they're 10 years of age. There has to be a, a both positive training and negative punishment in order to teach responsibility and uh, the fact that there are consequences and sometimes neg- harsh con- negative consequences to bad decisions. Now we come back to uh, this idea of discipline emphasizing uh, emphasizing this this control so that we the uh, it emphasizes the fact that in the last sentence there in the definition the purposes of this discipline was to restrict man's impulses to evil now a lot of people have problems with the what the Bible teaches about sin and not rec- I referred to this on Sunday morning recently I read an editorial from the New York Times I think. Uh, it was a book review written by a man who said, well, we were, he was an atheist. He said, evil really is a legitimate concept. His premise was right, that you can't talk about evil unless you can talk about God. Odd statement for an atheist, but we live in a world where people don't think consistently anymore. That's as uh, George Bernard Shaw said, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. So why bother yourself with being consistent all the time? But anyway, that was his point. Now, he went on to define evil as an event that was way beyond the norm in just human criminality or or bad deeds. Uh, He should have stuck with his original premise related to God because in the Bible, evil is always related to God. In the Old Testament, evil was always related to the rejection of God. All those kings in the northern kingdom of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord because they what? They followed after the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat, in terms of idolatry. They were disloyal to God. I mean, they rejected him and worshipped worshipped something else. Now, in Judaism, they recognize uh, this principle very much, that a person can go in either the direction of evil or the direction of good. In Judaism, there are two principles, the Yetzer Hara and, Hara and the principle uh, Yetzer Hatov. And the first is the principle of evil. That last uh, syllable in the second word there, ra, is the Hebrew word for evil. And this refers to the evil inclination that one is born with, that people can and do choose to do evil things. But there's also the fact that they can choose to do good. Uh, they can uh, do have an inclination to do good. And so this, again, emphasizes the principle of volition, and that's inherent within all of the Old Testament. Now, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, there are actually seven or eight different words that are used to describe sin. 
And I'm just going to focus on three of them uh, this evening. And we find all three of these in a verse back in Exodus uh, chapter 34, verse 7. I've included verse 6 to give us a context for, uh, <clears throat> for these verses. If we read this, Isaiah 34, 6 and 7, we read first about God and his goodness and his grace and mercy. So you can't ever talk about sin, or you shouldn't, without first making sure people understand about God's goodness and grace. God is a merciful God. God understands that man cannot do anything about his sin and his iniquity and that God and God alone can do something about that. And so we have a wonderful statement here in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Now, mercy and grace are two of the most important concepts in the Bible. Grace means unmerited or undeserved favor, that God is going to treat man not as man deserves to be treated, but in terms of goodness because of who God is, not on the basis of what man does. So God is going to extend to man again and again and again his grace, his kindness, his goodness, giving man chance after chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity to turn to God. God is not up there wanting to squash every man like a bug every time something, uh, every time you make a bad decision or do something wrong. Uh, the Lord is merciful. Mercy is the application of grace to specific situations and events. He's long-suffering. That means God puts up with our rebellion and sinfulness to give us time to make uh, decisions to turn to him, and that he is abounding in goodness and truth. Going on in verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. See, those three words pretty much uh, completely circumscribe sin. All All of sin falls into those three categories. So God forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, uh, by no means clearing the guilty, and he visits the iniquity of fathers upon the children and the children's children of the third and fourth generation. That's dealing with those who do not seek God's forgiveness for iniquity and transgression and sin. And so we have these three words here, and I will start with the third word because that is the uh, more uh, all-encompassing word, and it's the Hebrew word hata, and it means to uh, miss something, miss the target, miss the mark, miss the way. It's to uh, come short of a standard, to as a result of missing the standard, falling short in, in terms of obedience, it, it, it brings about guilt, uh, legal guilt, because you broke a law, you violated a uh, a commandment, uh, a mitzvah, mitzvah. You you have broken the commandment, so you have incurred guilt, and and there is a need then for uh, for purity. Now it also is used to describe the sin offering and the uh, purification from uncleanness uh, in a sin offering as well. But we have this word in some key passages. In fact, if you want a couple of passages in the Old Testament to to show. The universality of sin. Go to Isaiah chapter 1, for 1, 
uh, particular verse. And Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 is another. And this is uh, uh, as good a place, those are good places any to establish that. Isaiah 1, 4, in addressing the nation uh, with, with God's indictment, Isaiah says, alas, sinful nation. There we have the word hata. The whole nation is sinful, every one of them. That doesn't mean that there weren't those who were obedient to God, but that all had committed sin. Sin, excuse me, sinful nation, a nation ladled, laden with iniquity, avon, a, which will be a second word we'll look at in a second for sin, usually translated iniquity, uh, a brood of evildoers. And there we have the word ra which is not one of the three words I'm looking at, but that is another word that is used to describe sin in the Old Testament. Children who are corruptors. See, see, children aren't these little innocent, uh, uh, in, in, in God's viewpoint, children are not born innocent. They are born uh, capable of sin and evil. Children who are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked anger. The Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backwards. So it's an indictment to the whole nation that they have rejected God. Now, the second word that is also seen in that verse is the Hebrew word avon. that's translated usually iniquity, sometimes guilt or uh, the punishment for guilt. And this also comes from a, a root word that means twisted. So you have somehow... Uh, twisted uh, in terms of violating a standard of God, you, something, uh, a principle of truth has, or truth itself has been perverted or twisted. And so it came to mean uh, a, a iniquity, a perversion or twisting of God's, uh, God's standard. So Isaiah 1-4 says that uh, the, the people are laden with iniquity. Does that apply to all people? Well, Isaiah 64, 6 seems to suggest that. Uh, There Isaiah said, but we are all like an unclean thing. All of us. He included himself, or especially we'll see that in a minute. In Isaiah 6, when he goes into the, when he's in the presence of God in heaven, he says, oh, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. Even the best prophet, the best priest, the highest uh, individual in the Old Testament still was a sinner, someone who was guilty before God. But we're all like an unclean thing. And all our righteousness, not all our unrighteousness, but all of our righteousness, the very best that we can do, Isaiah says, are like filthy rags in the sight of God. We just can't get to the point where we can be perfect as God is perfect and holy as God is holy. All our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, there's our word, our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. We've, you know, Paul says it the same way in, in, in the New Testament, that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Same idea. Isaiah 13, 11 is uh, another case using this word. I will pun- God says, I will punish the world for its evil. That's Ra. And the wicked for their iniquity. That's the whole nation. The punishment that he's talking about is the removal of the nation under, under divine discipline in 586. 
So he's not talking about simply uh, a a subset. The whole nation has as viewed as having rejected him. They're wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud, and I will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. The root sin was arrogance, pride. Now here in Isaiah 6, 7, we have the same, uh, the word iniquity of own use when Isaiah is in the presence of God. And uh, as he says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. One of the uh, uh, one of the seraphs flew to him with a coal, touched it to his lips uh, and and uh, said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away. See, God provides the solution for removing the guilt of sin. And the last phrase, and your sin is purged, the word that is translated purged there is the Hebrew word kafar, which is where we get the word uh, translated atonement, Yom Kippur. Kippur is a form of that, that word for atonement. Why did Israel needed to have a day of atonement every year if they did not recognize that all in the nation were sinners and needed to be, and that sin needed to be purged by the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. But yet it had to be, uh, that sacrifice had to come year after year after year. There was not a permanent fix from the sacrifice. Zechariah 3.4 uses the same term again. And this is another tremendous picture of what we teach as the doctrine of justification by faith and the imputation of righteousness. This is a vision Zechariah has before the throne of God. Yahweh is speaking to the angel of Yahweh. So you have two divine persons there, which indicates that there is a multiplicity in the deity in the Old Testament. You have various, you have a number of passages that indicate that. The Spirit of God, the angel of the Lord, and the Lord. And we read here, then he answered, he's being, God is being challenged, and he answers, uh, Satan is challenging God as the accuser. He answered and spoke to those who stood before him saying, uh, take away the filthy, filthy garments from him. And the scene is you have Joshua the high priest standing before God, and he's wearing his filthy garments. And Satan, the accuser, says, how can he serve as a high priest? He's guilty. And so God says, remove his filthy garments and clothe him with clean garments. And that is what we teach is the imputation of righteousness. We're born with these with unrighteousness. All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. That has to be replaced, covered with clean garments. That's the righteousness of Christ. When you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, his righteousness is given to you. And then when God looks at you, he doesn't look at your sin, your failings. He looks at the righteousness of Christ, and for that you are declared just. So the verse here says, Take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have, to him that is to Joshua, God said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. And that applies to every single human being can have their iniquity removed from them and being clothed with rich rags. We see this word again in Isaiah chapter 53 dealing with the suffering servant 
This is one of the greatest prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That is, God would see the work that the Messiah would do and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, that is the Messiah who dies, obviously in the passage, the righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Justification only comes because the righteous servant is the one who bears our iniquities, not us. And the righteous servant is the Messiah of Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have the third word that we're looking at, and that for sin, and that is the word Peshah. Uh, it refers to rebellion or revolt, and that is the essence of sin. That man is in rebellion, he revolts against God. Every time you disobey God, uh, it's a rebellion against God. Isaiah 1-2, again, the first chapter of Isaiah, reminds us of this, uses this terminology. Uh, again, the, it starts off with an, uh, uh, addressing the heavens and the earth, just as Moses did when he lays down the indictment to Israel, the warnings and the blessing and cursing a prophecy in Deuteronomy 28 to 30. So Isaiah says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have pesha. They have rebelled against me. Sometimes this word is translated as transgression, as in Isaiah 128. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners, hata, shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. There is judgment for those who are disobedient. But this word is also used in relationship to atonement and the day of atonement in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 16. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, the whole nation. That's why they had to have a day of atonement, because everyone sinned. Because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Now the word transgressions is the word peshah. But we don't find it just there. We find it in Isaiah 53 again in the passage dealing with the work of the Messiah, the righteous servant. But he was wounded for our peshah, our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. There's that word again, uh, avon for iniquities. He was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace. He was punished so that we could have peace with God. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Also in Isaiah 53:12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. The suffering righteous servant is identified with the transgressors so that he can bear our iniquities. He bore the sin of many, chata, and made intercession for the transgressors. So when we look at the principle of discipline uh, in uh, Hebrews, dealing with, with the Old Testament passage, we have to recognize that what underlies that is the issue and the problem 
uh, dealing with sin. Now, when we come to looking at the uh, the second part of that uh, phrase in verse five, that we are not to be discouraged, or that we do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Now, this is one use of the word chastening that uses a different word. All the rest of them use a form of paiduo. But this one uses the Greek word uh, mastigao, which refers to uh, whipping, flogging, scourging, a a strong, harsh word for, for, for punishment, for being chastised. So the Lord is going to bring even harsh discipline, if necessary, in order to bring the disobedient believer uh, back into line. Why? Because God is mean? No, because God is a loving God. He wants us to be the best we can be and to grow to spiritual maturity. So whom the Lord loves, he chastens and he scourges. Here we have the word uh, scourge. That's the word mastergao. Chastens is paiduo. So he chastens and scourges. I got confused there. Uh, looking at the slide, scourges is mastigao, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And then when we read on, he says, if you endure chastening, so as God starts training you, don't be like one of those whiny little kids who wants to complain uh, that that uh, he's having to be disciplined and having to be trained. If you endure the chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? In both words there are paiduo, that you are trained. If you're, you're in the family of God, God's going to start training you. No exceptions. And then verse 8 tells you if you are an illegitimate child, if you are without chastening, uh, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not son. See, that phrase there, of which all have become partakers, is the writer's recognizing that those who, to whom he is writing have been going through this process. He's not questioning their salvation. He's saying you've all become part of this process. You're not illegitimate. Those who, of course, those who don't would be uh, illegitimate and not sons. And then he goes on in verse 9 to use the illustration of, of human fathers. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? In other words, quit trying to uh, rebel and leave Christianity just because you're being you're going through a training process. Don't give up. Uh, stick with it. For indeed. For they indeed for a few days chastened us, that is the human fathers, chastened us as seemed best to them, but he does it, that is God the Father does it for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. So that's the end game is our sanctification. Now, we'll stop there and come back next time to pick pick it up in verse 11 and then follow it on down into the next section, which is a Very important section in verse 12, especially picking up the whole uh, athletic race, uh, athletic contest race metaphor uh, in terms of strengthening the hands and the feeble knees. And we'll cover that next Thursday night. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening, to be encouraged by the fact that you are involved in our lives and that you are uh, personally uh, driving, moving us in the direction of training, maturity, uh, learning to walk in obedience. 
learning to walk in terms of the power of God, the Holy Spirit. And we are so thankful for your grace and your mercy and all that that means to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.